Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You know, there's and there's all these sort of different letters and numbers, and they bombard people, and they and frankly, they just they just get in the way of just letting people enjoy the sport. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am feeling very uncoordinated. Oh. So last week I told you about my incident with the weightlifting experience. Yes. <laughs> so I decided to stay away from the weights. Okay. And I figured I would try Zumba. Okay. Which, you know, get my whole ice dancing Latin rhythms on. Okay. This would be great. Yesterday, I just straight fell over <laughs> and hit the floor. And did I you, was like, not cross even... your legs funny, or did you just, like, step and <laughs> miss No, what? so I definitely am glad that Charlie White never asked me to be his partner, because <laughs> that would have ended badly. No, I was, I, I just leaned too far forward and just lost my balance <laughs> and just face-planted. <laughs> Oh man! Well, you know if you t- if you take out a limb, maybe you can. You know, have a tragic accident at the mall, falling down the stairs. Right, right, right. Choose parasports. Yeah, even that. Clearly, I am ill-equipped. I'm going to stay on the podcasting focus and right. stop trying to be well, an athlete of any kind. That's good for us. Kind. That's good for us. Oh, I have a, we have a quick correction from last week uh, before we get started with the show. wanted to mention that uh, we had called Tim Yount USA Triathlon's CEO. He is actually their chief sport development officer. A very nice title. But, I know, I like that. But, you know, it is one year until the Paralympics happen, which is crazy to think about. I'm getting so nervous. Really? I am. It's like, oh my God, Tokyo 2020 and then the both the Olympics and the Paralympics, it, it's going to come so fast. Right? And it feels like, okay, we've been preparing like for this for almost two years. 
in a sense. Right. I mean, yeah, you always like go from one Olympics. Oh, when's the next one going to happen? And you start thinking about them. But like for us, we've really been thinking about it and planning it. And you think, oh, my gosh, all of this is going to be over in a in a year. But what what would it be like to be on the other side where you're planning it for seven years or that kind of thing? It'd be crazy. Overwhelming. But really excited that the Paralympics are on their way, that we are celebrating the one year to go. And one thing as an able-bodied person I remembered distinctly from watching Rio is that I didn't understand the classification system. And it just felt like a lot of races were being held at the same distances, but they'd have different classifications, and I never understood it. So if you feel the same way, today we are hoping to clear that up for you with our guest. Today's guest is Giles Long, who is a Paralympic gold medalist in swimming, a television presenter, a motivational speaker, and a member of the Order of the British Empire. He also created Lexi, a graphical system that easily explains parasport classifications. So we talked with him about what goes into classifying an athlete in a parasport and how Lexi works. Take a listen. Giles, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Why do parasports have classifications? Well, I suppose you know, to kind of shorthand it, you can think of it almost like like boxing. It creates a, it, in the same way that weight categories in boxing create a framework for competition. You know, you can have a heavyweight who's champion of the world and you can have a featherweight who are champion of the world, and but they're not going to fight each other. And effectively, that classification system creates a, a way in which people with similar impairment types, similar disabilities are clustered together to create competition that's fair. That's that's really kind of the bottom line. All right. What kind of impairments get classified? So well, in Paralympic Games, you can be either, you either have a physical impairment, you either have a visual impairment, or you can have an intellectual impairment. And currently, uh, though, it, out falling outside of that are hearing impairments. Deaf Olympics is, a, is currently a, a separate thing. And then within that, those sort of, I suppose, kind of families of impairment type, some sports like swimming and athletics accept all of those impairment types. And then other sports, uh, for instance, you can only have a visual impairment and do judo. You know, some sports won't accept uh, visual impairment, some sports, you know, this, that and the other. But it's basically swimming and athletics, the two, two central sports accept all. Why is that that some don't accept visual impairments? Uh, I think it's just the way that the, the way that the sports have grown up, really, and the sports gets to a certain point where they become big enough to get accepted into the Paralympic Games. Just because, but just because stuff isn't happening in the Paralympic Games itself, it doesn't mean that that there aren't people with. Uh, well, in fact, I do know that there is, for instance, uh, visually impaired um, shooting. Like I don't want to be anywhere near them when that happens, but uh, but that you know that is going on. <laughs> now I could like now your listeners can't see you, but I could see you two laugh just then when I said that. And see, like in the Paralympic world, that is something that's completely fine to say. Every <laughs> athlete would be fine with saying that, so don't worry about things like that. Well, we also don't want to laugh for sound quality because <laughs> oh, please. we don't want to block don't, you out. No, don't, don't even. <laughs> You're too kind. You're too kind. So 
as an athlete, like, how do you get classified and when do you get classified and, and how often do they check you out? And who uh, does it? Who does it? So a there's a, te- a team of classifiers who are specifically trained in giving an athlete a classification. So if you have a a visual class if you have a yeah if you have a visual classification then that obviously is an is an optical test very similar to when you go if you know if you wear glasses and you go and have you go and have an optical test and really what they're looking for there is they're looking for your um the degree of field that you have so effectively how how wide can you is your vision and also how much depth you can have like depth is particularly important in sports like swimming where you need to get the judge the the end of the pool very precisely to get the turn right it's very important obviously in skiing where you're moving very very quickly but then field width would be important in a sport like rowing where you want to see where your competition is for instance so though you know so you would have that kind of that kind of test a physical test would be done principally by a physiotherapist and then also and with each range of motion um, you accrue points so let's say they want to test your finger grip well a full finger grip would give you maybe 10 points and a weakened finger grip would give you five points and imagine that all added up all over your body and that would give you a point score and that point score would slot you into a certain category like S8, as you mentioned earlier, for me, for swimming, um, and we'll put you somewhere on that on that classification spectrum. For swimming, what does S8 mean? So in swimming, there are categories that go from 1 for the most severely impaired to 10 for those with a minimal impairment. And um, so I on that, on that scale of 1 to 10, I was an 8. So if you imagine someone swimming without one hand that would be an s10 someone swimming without one forearm would be an s9 someone swimming without one arm or without the use of one arm would be an s8 or there could be comparable leg impairments as well so i was sort of towards the top end of the spectrum but important to remember that classification is sport specific particularly in physical impairments so what might put you at the top end of the spectrum in one sport would put you at the bottom end in another sport. So for instance, if I was playing wheelchair basketball, having an arm disability would put you towards the bottom end of the spectrum where being able to catch the ball with two hands and throw with symmetry is much more important than being able to swim with two good arms in swimming where you, if you've got a good leg kick, you can counterbalance your arm pull with your leg kick. That's really interesting, which makes... I mean, it compounds the whole issue of like when you watch them going from sport coverage to sport coverage and understanding how the classification works for every sport. And as a casual viewer, I think even just understanding the basics, but knowing that they switch from sport to sport is interesting. Does the International Paralympic Committee or the federations constantly reexamine these classifications and change them up? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's a living system, and so the systems are always being tuned and um, and refined. It's even within the sport is a you know is, is consistently is a talking point because for some athletes they are happy with the system like any system you know some athletes are happy with the way things are and for some they want to see change and that change is is not is not happening quick enough. So it's it's some I suppose. Well, I suppose you could boil it down to you can't please all the people all the time. 
but it is that's part and parcel of Paralympic sport. And you, I think you, I have seen over the years many athletes who just sort of mentally kind of found it very difficult to get on board with it, if you like. And, and and really that that it sort of puts you in a place of like well this is it is what it is you either choose to be part of it and compete or or you don't. So when they group and parents together, I know like when you mentioned S eight, there it could be <laughs> limbs or arms or legs, and did they do mm. research and figuring out like okay this affects your balance this way, this affects your balance that way, so we can group all of them together. Yes, yeah, and and of course, no research is ever foolproof, and it's as good as it can be for that moment in time. But yeah, it's effectively you. I suppose take my sport of swimming, where you have the the main components of how much power can you put into the water versus how streamlined can you make your body, and how how streamlined can you and and I suppose, and then I suppose the other sort of offshoot from how much power can you put in the water is with what degree of precision can you do that so if you so for instance you could go to the gym and you know bench press i don't know 200 kilos and be incredibly strong but if you have no precision in being able to where you place your hand in the water then that is it's it's effectively useless it'd be like taking a great big car with a you know an enormous engine in it but putting tiny thin wheels on it because it and it can never it can never put that power into the road to make the car go go forward so that you're always trying to trying to match together those things and and some elements are given certain weighting so it talks about how you kind of accrue points through various movement type, you know whether you can move you know maybe the grip of your hands the way you can move your neck your legs your ankles how much ankle flexibility you've got all of those things all add together, but each, you know, each component is weighted in a different way. So you're, you know, particularly in swimming, you're, the ability to maintain a good body position in the water is absolutely critical. So your any kind of thorax, your torso, all of those kind of points that you generate there will be will be very very heavily weighted in relation, you know, if, in comparison to. I'm trying to think of something that is less important. It all seems important, but uh, but maybe in comparison to something like your movement from your hips, if you would do yeah in, in front crawl in freestyle, for instance. Now, does it vary with the strokes? Yeah, well, so butterfly, backstroke, and freestyle have one number, and then breaststroke has it has a separate kind of spin-off number, which is your SB number. And then those two numbers get combined, which gives you your medley number. So, I mean, I think, to be honest, I think it, it can be quite dangerous to get involved in the, because each sport has grown up in isolation, that's why they all have different classification systems. And, and you can get, I think, I think definitely for, for people watching, you can get quite hung up on the, you know, okay, so it's S8 in swimming, and, I've, and then we've gone to the track, and it's T44, and now I'm at, basketball and there are no letters but people are talking about a 1.5 player and then I'm you know and now I'm at the cycling and it's C and you know there's and there's all these sort of different letters and numbers and they bombard people and they and frankly they just they just get in the way of just letting people enjoy the sport. Has there been any move to standardize the systems in terms of using the same terminology? I mean I realize each sport is different but Mm -hmm. 
if they used letters and numbers across the board? Yeah, I think the, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's a, it, superficially it sounds like a logical thing to do, but if you, again, it, it come, comes back to there are some things for some sports that are really important, and then there are, you know, those things are, are less important in other sports. So you kind of, you kind of can't mix it all up because, you know, what's important about being a really great track cyclist where having really good finger grip is really important because you need to be able to hang onto the handlebars to transmit the power into the bike. Well, having really good finger grip, is that important if you're a track runner? No, not really. So, you know, it's kind of the key attributes of some sports don't translate to others. And so you do need to have these, these separate systems. And we're dealing with Olympics, so why would logic play into it? <laughs> you, well, your word's not why. <laughs> but then I also imagine it's, it's kind of like we forget that the Paralympics is also bringing together multiple international federations. So really the international federations kind of set the rules. Is that correct? Or is it, <laughs> yeah, is it really driven? Is it they all work to the Paralympics? Well, I'm, I'm sort of quite conscious of the fact that I don't seem to have given you a straight answer to anything yet. But uh... <laughs> yet again, it's the Olympics and the Paralympics. How could there be a straight answer? Yeah. Well, some federations are. I suppose. Well, let's. If you if you look at the Olympics, where the IOC sits as an overarching body, which controls the sports when they are operating in the Olympic or under the Olympic umbrella. And then away from that, FINA controls swimming, the IAAF control athletics, the ITU does cycling, blah, 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 blah. And when it comes to the Olympics, they effectively license their athletes to the IOC for the period of the Olympics. In the Paralympics, that happens in about a third of the cases. So the wheelchair basketball has its own federation. Cycling falls under... Uh, the UCI, um, triathlon falls under the ITU, the same as with able-bodied sports, but with track and field and with swimming, they are directly controlled by the International Paralympic Committee all the time. So it's actually, it's, it's a much more vertical structure. And there are people who would say that, that, that it needs to move away to be more like the Olympics. And, you know, there's people like myself who just sort of waiting to see which which way they they decide to go i mean it's certainly it's it has served the sports very well to be structured in that way but as paralympic grows and certainly since london 2012 when it really started to hit its stride it's become it's almost becoming such a it's becoming too big and too complicated and i think there's a there is a sort of a push within certain quarters to try and streamline things a bit that's really interesting well then if if they do split them out would they go to the respective international federation or would they possibly spin out into their own thing in some cases it could could be that they go to the able-bodied federation in other cases it means they spin out into their own thing i suppose if i was to if i was to speak my mind candidly it would probably depend on whether the able-bodied federation wants to accept para sport and if 
the sport ends up if a if a sport ends up spinning out to form its own federation that means it hasn't been successful in amalgamating with its able-bodied federation i couldn't see a situation whereby an able-bodied federation would say yeah sure you're welcome come 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 to us and uh, and, a, and a sport would say no i mean they might do but i can't see i i couldn't see a situation where that would happen so when the United States Olympic Committee recently changed its name, because it's kind of been covering Paralympics anyway, and now it actually put it in his name, was that a big deal for the para community? Oh, it's a massive deal. It was a massive deal because obviously, you know, the USA is an incredibly important country in the, you know, in the Olympics, in the Paralympics. And, and I think that, you know, the, those of us who... It's a kind of it's a double-edged sword in a way because we always, we always just look at the USA and and think and in one sense feel sorry for the American athletes because it kind of felt like they were just sort of a a slightly sidelined department of the USOC and felt sorry for them in that sense. But on the one on the other hand, just thought, oh, I really hope they don't get better at this because then they'll become <laughs> even harder to beat. <laughs> so on the one hand, you know, <laughs> but, no, I mean, for, you know, sort of joking aside, it was for years. It it was that whole kind of thing of you know they get they get a raw deal in the US, the the athletes there, and that you know they're not sort of they don't get a fair crack of the whip when it comes to organisation, when it comes to attracting sponsorship, when it comes to money, when it comes to, and then all of a sudden, just with this name change, and okay, so you do have to put your money where your mouth is when you when you do stuff like this. You know, you can't just change your name and go right. That's it. Everything's fine now. But all of a sudden, it feels like they they've gone from being five steps behind the rest of the world to leapfrogging the rest of the world, and and having this whole kind of thing of just saying, look, we are the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and now, and then all of them, yeah, you know, most other countries have separate Olympic associations as we have in this country so you know separate committees and you know there's so much crossover and good stuff that you can get from being together that it um it just seems to make real sense to me talk to us about some of the visual impairment boards or classifications and why they have to wear eye shades so well with with any sport i suppose you uh you know you where you have any kind of system you or any sport attracts attracts cheats and one of the few areas in all sports that you can be certain of is that if you're saying you're completely blind, then that means you can see nothing. So therefore, by wearing blackout goggles or glasses or whatever, it really shouldn't make any difference to you. So here you go. Everyone wears them. And then we like we know for absolute definite that, that no one can see anything. And that, that's really all, all that is about. Oh, because you could cheat the eye test is that the idea well like any, like any test you could cheat you could cheat the eye test you could cheat the you know you could potentially try and say that you you know or try and move your body less than you are actually able to and and try and try and cheat the test yeah sure you know if i think there's a there's a misconception out there in the world that, that just because you have a disability that doesn't mean that you're that, that sector of society isn't doesn't have its kind of its cutthroat members that are that are prepared to do anything to try and win 
And that by the same token, if, you know, if you've got a disability, just because you have one, it doesn't mean that you don't have hopes, dreams, aspirations, all the things that everyone else has. And so it almost seems like people are kind of double shocked. Oh, my God, you've, you've got a disability, but you want to cheat? Oh, my word, how on earth has this happened? It's a bit like when uh, it happens, it happens less now, but definitely, or definitely 20 years ago, whenever uh, blind people used to used to meet, people for the first time that person would start talking louder and it's like no i'm you know i can't i can't say i can hear you fine in fact i can probably hear you better than anyone else we don't you know just talk at a regular volume that's fine so um yeah you know and there's all the time all the time all the time paralympics is breaking down these these barriers of and of people kind of uh, how they how they perceive having a disability and, and what that means so you know how you have doping scandals. Do you also have classification stripping scandals in Paralympics? Yes, far fewer than than doping uh, scandals. But yeah, they definitely do. They definitely do exist, and they they are they're very infrequent. But when they do come round, they tend to make quite. A, if they do come round around about the time of Paralympics, they make a lot of noise because I I, I suppose because they're fascinating in a way. You remember when when Ben Johnson was caught out in the 1988 Olympics. And I think that was the first time that you had, like, you know, like, if there is, you know, the event at the Olympics, it is the men's 100 metres. And it was, you know, he, he won it in spectacular, in such spectacular fashion. And then he tested positive so close to him winning it. And I think that for the first time, that was, that was the first time that a lot of people were really conscious of that, that there was, you know, there were drug cheats in sport. And I think that Paralympics, you know, sort of 30, 40 years after the fact, and people are just starting to cotton on to this idea that if you have a, if you have to prove that your body moves in a certain way to get into a certain class, then if you can prove that it moves less and you get to swim in a class that's slightly lower or run in a class that's slightly lower, then that potentially gives you a competitive edge, and people and people find that fascinating. So yeah, it makes a big noise when it does happen. Oh, that makes me mad. But then doesn't doping in sport make you? Oh, 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 oh don't get oh, her started. Really listen to me do some rants on doping in sport. I go off the rails on that. Yeah, because by the time you've got to that level, you're doing something every day. You're training every day. You've made it your life. To then be you know, to be robbed of your moment because someone else isn't isn't playing by the rules. It's you know, we're not we're beyond doing something as a hobby or a pastime. Yeah, it's just it's not cool. No. I'm just trying to think of like making a prosthetic longer or something or gripping less. Well you you don't have to. You only you only have to look at some footage from London twenty twelve of uh Alan Oliveira versus Oscar Pistorius. And uh, Oscar Pistorius, live on Channel 4, said that Alan Oliveira was cheating because his prosthetic limbs were too long. And was he? Well, not according to the rules, but you have to remember that at the time, Pistorius was trying to compete in the Olympics. Right. And, um, and I think the IOC or, or the RAAF or which, whoever it was had said to him that he needed to make his legs shorter I think I'm getting this right. <laughs> he, had to, he had to make... Anyway, there was a leg discrepancy and it was something to do with the fact that he wanted to compete in the Olympics and Alan Oliveira 
was this uh, this young guy from Brazil who just came out of nowhere, and and he was. They were both competing within legal limits at Paralympics, and and Alan Oliveira won. What's the feeling in the Paralympic community when athlete now Oscar Pistorius, of course, has his own story. So we'll kind of put that aside. Part that, but yeah. when Paralympians want to compete with able-bodied athletes, how how is that viewed? I, I don't. Most of the time, people don't have a have a problem with it. I think where where it it tends to break down is when you're relying on a piece of equipment which can't be directly translated to a sort of standard, if you like, working part of a human body. So in in the Pistorius case, he was, you know, you had these carbon fiber springs and it was like, well, how does that work in the relation to a leg with a calf muscle, ankle and foot? And the short answer, I think, is there. You know, there, it, it came with pros and cons. You know, you had the whole thing of like, well, the the blade foot is lighter, but equally, it doesn't deliver power necessarily when you want it. It delivers power once it's been loaded with the power, and then it it returns it. So that's when there seems to be a problem. There's a there's a guy called Marcus Rehm from Germany. He's a long jumper, and he has tried to compete able-bodied and he's got one prosthetic leg below the knee. And I think the argument generally is perceived that if he, as he was doing the, the long jump, if he took off on, on, his, on his takeoff foot, if he took off from his able-bodied foot side, then there wouldn't be a problem. But all of the para-athletes now take off from their prosthetic side so they what they're what they're doing is having prosthetic limb you know legs that are made which are much stiffer than you would ever use for a normal prosthetic walking leg and the idea is you run as fast as you can and then you you basically lean on the on the spring and then push off the spring now don't get me wrong marcus Rehm is an amazing long jumper and, that, and, and that's a whole other side thing of then in trying to get into the Olympics, you then undermine what you're trying to do yourself and, and, and all that. But another example is where it was completely acceptable was Natalie Dutoy, a great South African S9 swimmer, and she was just absolutely incredible. And she swam for South Africa at the Manchester 2002 Commonwealth Games. So, you know, they... It, it can be done, and people do do it. But I think that you can see how the argument is very different. If you're turning up with a different kind of leg to what to that that everyone else has got, well, then that causes some consternation. But if you're turning up and you're swimming with one leg and you're making finals and everyone else has got two legs, well, that's you're clearly at a disadvantage. And but you're still you're still up there with everyone. So it it really is a case by case basis. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about the Lexi system. The Lexi system is a graphic system that helps to simplify what the classification is about for the television audience or the viewing audience inside a venue. So talk to us about how you came up with the idea and how how long it took to develop and all that. Well, I first had, I was competing at the Sydney Games and a teammate of mine had hemiplegic cerebral palsy, which means that he has all of his arms and limbs, but one arm and one leg on one side of the body don't work properly. And it's 100 meters breaststroke final, 
And the way that the BBC cut the race up meant that we only got to see the final sort of seven metres of the 100 metres breaststroke. And he's swimming against a Chinese swimmer called Baron Gong. And Baron Gong has got no arms. So Baron Gong's 100 metres breaststroke is all leg kick. It's just leg kick, whereas Sasha Kindred has got a full arm pull, but one side is uncoordinated, and a full leg kick, but one one side of that leg kick is uncoordinated. Anyway, so they get to the, the final closing stages of the race, and we're down to about maybe the final three feet, and there's, there's absolutely nothing in it. Now, Baron Gong, the only way that he's going to finish the race is he's got to touch the wall with his head, whereas Sasha gets to the end of the wall and springs his arms out and hits the touch pad in, in front of the Chinese swimmer and wins the race. And when I got home, I was like, this is, this is my teammate, Sasha, he's amazing. And everyone was like, ah, oh, but wasn't the Chinese guy, you know, he was so quick. And I was just like, oh, you don't understand. You don't, un you don't understand that the Chinese swimmer had the advantage at the start, that he's more streamlined, that the two good legs that he's got can kick together in, in a synchronized fashion. And you think that because Sasha's got arms that he has an advantage and he just doesn't work like that. And I just thought, we're never going to get anywhere with Paralympics. We're never going to get beyond the, oh, wow, aren't these people amazing? Aren't they inspirational? We're, ne we're never going to get people watching the sport if fundamentally they don't understand the rules. And so in my head, my dad's a graphic designer and he always used to say to me, if you've got lots to say, you need a picture. And I just thought it'd be obvious. Like on TV, you could just have these human diagrams, human icons, we call them, and you could colour them in various ways, it, like a traffic light system. So areas of the body that were green worked in a, a kind of normal function, if you like. Areas that were yellow were slightly affected. Areas that were orange a bit more affected and areas that were red, you know, couldn't, didn't have a lot of movement at all. And you could use that, you could illustrate that on screen, and then you could use a voice over the top to explain to people why this sort of seemingly random group of disabilities, why they were grouped together. And that you could do very, very quickly. And crucially, you could do that before the start of the race so that when the race was on, people weren't sat in their lounges, in their sitting rooms, asking each other or saying to each other, I don't get it. Why is the guy with one arm bracing the guy with one leg? This isn't fair. It doesn't make sense. Or maybe other sort of really basic questions that people have. Um, I've just seen a wheelchair race. Why am I seeing another wheelchair race? You know, all these things that, that become real hang-ups for people. And then the race goes and the, it's won or lost or, you know, something amazing happened or it didn't. And all that has been lost because people spend, are spending all their time just talking about the rules. And so really that's where it came from. It came from the, the Sydney 2000 Paralympics and then it sat in my head for about 10 years. And then um, when Channel 4 took Paralympics on in the UK, they had committed to explain how classification works. And um, a producer just said to me, oh, we've, you know, we've, uh, we've said we're going to do this thing, but we don't know how we're going to do it. Have you got any ideas? And I said, well, funnily enough, yeah, I have. And I drew it for him with a, uh, with a, you know, with a big biro on a, on a notepad. And then, and then that was the start of it. People like visuals. They like flashing it up on the screen, color coding, yeah. keep it simple. Well, and also I think that people find it, have you ever, have you ever pulled over and asked someone on the pavement on the, on the sidewalk for directions? And 
everyone's like this. Once you're beyond your third piece of, yeah, you go down the road, then it's the first on the right, second on the left. And then you're there and you're like, oh, right. So I can remember that I've got to go turn right and then I've forgotten everything else. Because people find it very difficult to convert something that you have told them vocally and visualize that. People find it very difficult to kind of convert information from sound to vision and from vision to sound. You know, if you flashed up a, um, a picture of something and said to someone, right, I want you to describe this, um, a lot of people would actually find that quite challenging. Whereas if you give them both sound and vision and combine that together, that becomes a very, very powerful way of explaining something that's complicated and let's face it, arguably quite boring a lot of the time you know it, it's something that people watch sport because they want to be entertained and as soon as you start going down the route of like okay everyone sit down be quiet and you know i'm just about to take you to school then it starts to become a bit of a chore and and you know there are so many other things that sports that people can watch so how long did it take to turn the idea beside but when once you were working with channel four to make that happen it took about it well I'd been working on it really sort of from the idea and I'd kind of worked on it on and off on and off on and off and then when we get to got to the point where we were going to actually do something with it I think we had about through about 20 different redraws and we tried all sorts of color systems which particularly at the time there was a there was a real hang up about using the color red is the color red offensive um, and you can, you know, you can kind of go backwards and forwards about, you know, is the color red offensive? And so then we tried, we had a color scheme that was blue, gold, cream and black. And then it was like, well, is black offensive? You know, and then it was like, and so we threw black out and replaced that with white. And then it's like, well, you know, and you end up tying yourself in knots because you're trying not to offend anyone. So we tried all of that. And then we tried loads and loads of different shapes. I was very it was very important to me that the shape had a unisex appeal to it because I didn't want there to be a male shape explaining female races. I thought that was I thought that that was that was really important. And then the one of the other things that was was important was by placing the the Lexi icons, the the human shape, onto a black lens shape. It meant that the a the colours stood out and were much bolder. And you could, particularly, you could see the difference between yellow and orange much more brightly. But also that shape then gave your character scale. And that gave a really neat way of illustrating people who have short stature, um, which used to be called dwarfism, whereby in the past, if there was ever any diagram to try and explain that, it always had this sort of, it would be someone standing with someone else holding a tape measure up next to them. And it was... <laughs> Yeah, I know, and you're both laughing, and it was like, and, it, and it, I just thought, what an unbelievable, you know, yes, of course, we, you know, everyone knows that the people with short stature are there because of their height, but, you know, what, we can't come up with a better way of illustrating it than a tape measure, and so that was, you know, but that way of being able to, you two are actually killing this. <laughs> I know, that just did me in, I don't know, uh. I don't know why. Uh, yeah. Just give me a second, I'll be fine. I'm just so horrified by this person <laughs> with the tape measure. I just I know. Um and so there were you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of streamlining that went on and I don't know, it, thousands of man hours to get to get it to where it is. And we've got we're running on something like 
I don't know, about 165 different characters and about 300 3D characters and various bits and bits and pieces. But the whole, so the whole thing is almost like a, an alphabet of itself. And what that enables you to do is, is it, we talked earlier on about classification being tuned and refined. And it means that if the classification is tuned and refined, all we do is we just rearrange our icons and it still it still represents it accurately and still and still illustrates to to the viewer the same thing. And above sort of returning to an earlier point as well, is it creates a single way of communicating every single classification system in the same way for the viewer. So you've still got those complicated letter number formations which are there for the expert but for everyone else they can bypass that because they are being you know you go from the running track and you you're explained the t38 in this way then you go to the velodrome and you're having a c5 explained to you but it's still in the same way then you go to swimming and you see an s6 but it's still the same way so you've got all these different numbers but all the time those human that human iconography is still explaining it all the same way and hopefully creating a shorthand so that you're not sitting next to your partner or your friends or whoever while you're watching it on TV and you're just like, yeah, come on USA, let's see if we can win this one. That's that's what you want. That's what every sport wants. Every sport wants that. And it's much harder to generate than you think. Well, how hard was it to get more clients besides Channel 4? Because I know now that you, you have a pretty big client roster for the product. How difficult was it to sell other broadcasters on this idea? At first, it was it was very difficult because because there were there's there was so much nervousness. I mean, we talked about the nervousness around the color basis that we that we were looking at, but there's so much nervousness around disability and oh, how should we talk about it? And oh, do you think it's going to be okay? And are we going to we're going to drive our audience away? And I think that once. Once we've been through 2012 and then once we've been through Sochi as well, and we had like, so we had that whole thing of London, well, London 2012 wasn't just a flash in the pan. We've just proved we did, you know, we've done British TV and Russian TV this time. And then after that, when we started to get to Rio, then everyone saw that if you just treat your audience like adults and you explain it in an unemotional, factual way, then people will just people will just respond to that. If you say to it, you know, if you say to someone, this next race is for people with one arm, people with one leg, people who can't move their neck properly, and for people with a bad back. And the reason that those people are put together is they find it difficult to roll when they're swimming freestyle. Okay, onto the race. And if you do it like that, then everyone just goes, all oh, right, okay, brilliant. If you go, okay, so this is for people who have very painfully lost one arm and some other people who have had very very tragic motorcycle accidents some of them maybe fell down the stairs in the shopping mall and they lost a leg another person with a bad back because they can't afford to buy a good bed at home you know (laughs) you know once you start going down that ridiculous kind of route then all of it, then you're asked, then you're saying to your audience, your audience are going to start responding to it in a completely different way. And there is space for it because that's one of the things where the Paralympics is very rich 
is in human stories and backstories and you know how how did you acquire your disability where did it come from were you born with it did you do military service were you sick as a child were you you know all of that stuff is really important but it's important once the race is done once the race is done you don't like the audience don't need to know if you had a motorbike accident before the race but if you win the race then everyone wants to know about your motorbike accident because they they want the color around it they want the story but not before the race before the race it's just it's it's just clutter. So yeah, I'm starting to ramble. Where do we get no, to? No, but let me let me ask. As an able-bodied person, do you get tired of being asked about how you acquired your disability? Uh, no, not really. Um, you'd be surprised at how how little it happens. Really? Uh, yeah. Do, and do people are people too scared to ask? No, I think it's most of the time people don't care. You know, it's just. I, I suppose sometimes, you know, sometimes kids ask. My my right arm is slightly shorter than my left, and I can't uh, I can't lift my arm above my above my shoulder. So, for instance, things that are really difficult for me are like putting boxes on high shelves. That's that's not a sport I'm ever going to excel in. And um... <laughs> don't worry, Giles. Me neither. I'm five feet tall. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> get the tape measure measure yeah, allison form a, a society the low shelf society <laughs> um, but uh yes yeah, so, you know sometimes sometimes people ask and they you know just tell them straight out because it's important for people to to understand and and every time that people, someone understands that you know you you want you want to live a fulfilled life but you also have have a disability that 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 sort of you know one person that that understands slightly more. Every country's in its in its own place, and I, th- I, I suppose as well there's probably a whole British thing of that people are sort of a bit more reserved than than you guys over there, and so people might be a little bit more straight out and just sort of ask. But but I don't think that it, or certainly in in my experience, I can't think of a single person that I've ever met that has got a disability that has ever minded about being asked about it. Now we know. Yeah. There you go. Now you go and ask someone, they'll just be like, why are you asking me that? Go on, go away. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be so rude. But Giles said. (laughs) Yeah, but Giles said, who's Giles? (laughs) So looking ahead to 2020 for the Lexi system, are you working on it? Do you, are you tweaking it or what, what's the, what's the plans? Well, the plan is we've got a whole new, um, a whole new product whereby certainly in the past we've kind of taken the viewer away to give them that you know that twenty second shot of information and then taken them back to the sport. So you know maybe you'd be, you know, at the athletics, you'd be looking at the track and they'll be kind of teeing up the race and then have the lane order. Then you get a full frame you know, full screen animation, which explains that class. And then you go back to the sport. But now we've got, and we've actually tested on the Commonwealth Games, an integrated graphic platform, whereby the graphic comes up in the corner of the screen and the commentator does the voicing. And that's enabled us to overcome some serious technical challenges in so much as if every commentator is putting the voice on, then all of a sudden you have no language problem because the Japanese commentator is doing it in Japanese. Um, also, you've got, you know, 
fantastic with accents. You know, if you're in North America, you don't, you know, you want to hear a North American voice. You don't necessarily want to hear a British voice. Um, you know, in Canada, um, you want to hear a French Canadian voice. You don't want to hear a French European voice. Um, so that eliminates all of that. And so we'll be working with all the major broadcasters that we did um, again. For Commonwealth Games, we actually did the host feed. So we went to 137 countries. So that was a major, a major step forward for us. But then we will still be offering the those kind of full frame graphics packages and then other integrated social media stuff so that broadcasters can tweet information which is based around the Lexi system in time with their broadcast so that there's a, there's, a, there's never enough time in broadcast you always like pushed for time when you've got multiple sports up and running and especially so in Paralympics where it's not like the Olympics where you have swimming and then the athletics starts up swimming and athletics start up on top of one another so you're forever just crashing all over the place so you've just got, got no time so this new version of Lexi enables us to not, you know, not, we're not about turning people into experts, but we're about getting them over that hump so that they're not asking those basic questions we talked about earlier. And we reckon we can do that in about 10 seconds. So we've kind of halved our, our previous time and all the time just, you know, drip feeding people information to keep their hats, you know, so they've still got skin in the game. Excellent. Thank you so much, Giles. You can Find more out about Giles at gileslong.com. And he is at gileslong on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find more about Lexi system at lexi.global. And we also want to say thank you to Katie Holloway and Kelly Crawley of the podcast Inside Parasport for connecting us with Giles. And you can find their podcast on Apple Podcast and other fine podcasting apps. And they they do have an interview show with a lot of athletes, and it's really interesting to hear them talk about the parasports. So if you want to know more about that world, definitely check out their podcast. I think Giles may be one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. Really? We both talked about it beforehand. We were kind of nervous about using the right terminology, mm -hmm. and we didn't want to make a misstep. And he immediately put us at ease, like, look, you're just interviewing another athlete. Mm -hmm. and another expert in his field. And very quickly, we got past that uncomfortableness. Right. Or discomfort. That's the word. With him. And he was just so informative and so good about and able to communicate it so well. Right. And just and made me excited about watching all these stuff. I feel so much more educated about what's going on just from his explanations. Right. And the system is really cool too. It's, yes. I just think it's so neat that they were able to get it down into a very simple to read graphical system. That's very clear in, Hey, we're grouping all these different abilities together and here's why. So that was really neat. One of the things we were talking about that was really interesting to me was that whole athletes have to get classified all the time. So not just only do they have to go through a doping testing situation, they also have to go through classification testing all the time and classifications are always being refined. But like in the, in between the time we talked with Giles and when we are taping the show, Paralympics Australia has come up with a little program. It's a, it's an online course that uh, para athletes have to take to teach them about misrepresenting themselves in classifications yeah. So it's a little online course. It's mandatory. And, uh, you know, it's a comic. They, they said that 
misrepresentation of who you are classification-wise is a common concern, but it doesn't happen all the time. But they wanted to make sure it's not happening today, not on our watch. So when he was talking about that, I'm going to date myself here because it reminded me of an episode of Little House on the Prairie when Nellie Olson pretended to be paralyzed and couldn't walk and had to be in a wheelchair. (laughs) And then Laura Ingalls rolled her in her little chair and dumped her off the hill so that she would have to prove her skill of being able to walk. So I just have this image of like the officials going and like dumping one of these people and saying, I know those legs work. Just some awful. Well, that's one way to put it. Giles told me those jokes were okay. (laughs) One other thing that Giles told us that was very exciting for Allison was his little run in with the queen. When he became. She may have said to him. Ah, yes. And we will have that audio for our Patreon sponsors. Uh, We'd like to take a minute to thank them. They are some of our supporters who donate money to keep our flames alive. And, you know, it takes a good 20, 25 hours a week to produce an episode. So listener contributions really help make it possible to keep this show going. We now have two ways you can contribute. And you can go to our website, olimfever.com, and click on the support button. And so if you'd like to make one-time donation, we now have a PayPal button for that. And if you'd like to make a sustaining and ongoing contribution, you can go through Patreon, which is patreon.com slash oldlimbfever. And we do have uh, levels of patronage that uh, include bonus audio. So we will hear about Giles and the Queen coming up. He does possibly a little impression, (laughs) which is pretty adorable. So thank you so much, everyone, for your support. We really appreciate it. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Photographer Lou Jones and his team are still hard at work on their Pan-Africa project, and they're finishing the design for the first volume of the art book that goes with it. You can check out Pan-Africa Project for more information, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Lou's got a show going on right now at the Bridge Gallery in Cambridge, Massachusetts through the end of August, and next year he will have an exhibition at the Worcester Center for Crafts in Worcester, Mass., and the opening reception for that will be on July 17th, 2020. So right before. Right before the games. So that will be interesting. Um, Another artist, John McLeod, his uh, his Kickstarter did not get fully funded, unfortunately. So he's moving on to Plan B, which is a different fundraising drive through Seed and Spark, which is a fundraising platform for filmmakers. So he's lowered his uh, fundraising goal to $4,000. And that will be enough to get through post-production on one of his two stories. So maybe if you donate, you can have input because both story previews are uh, pretty good. It looks so good. I know. So if you are so inclined to support his efforts, you will have a link to that in our show notes as well. Our Team Olympic Fever sport climber, Josh Levin, had a really... Did you see this Instagram post? No. Okay, so it was the World Sport Climbing Championships, and some of the people who competed there did get their berths to go to Tokyo, but he didn't qualify for Worlds, and he had such a good post on Instagram about it. He said he's been, as he told us, he's been training and training for Tokyo, but the 
team that the U.S. sends to Worlds is only six members on both the men's and the women's team. So he had been ranked sixth all year, and he'd been getting personal bests and improving, and then all of a sudden he dropped to eighth because other people kind of bounced ahead of him. So he did not get to go to Worlds this year, but he's still going for Tokyo, so he's still training really hard. And it was just really interesting. He he was very well-spoken about how it was frustrating, but he's he's been improving, and you know it's kind of one of those you can only control what you can c- control, and you can't control what happens with other people and how they do. But he's doing his best to do his best. So well, good for I was him. very proud. I of know. Him for that. I know how hard he's been working. Yes. So we are rooting for you, Josh. We hope that you'll make a breakthrough and climb past the competition. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one go. I'm going to I'm going to go chalk myself up and move on. <laughs> okay. Jacqueline Simino, our artistic swimmer is going to take over the Insta feed for Athletes Can, the Association of Canadian National Team Athletes, and that she'll be doing that on August 29, so tune in. I'm excited to see what she's going to do. And then she's also an ambassador for the Tough Mountie Challenge which supports the Foundation of Stars, which is a childhood diseases research organization. And that will be in Montreal on Sunday, October 13th. I'm now very curious about this tough Mountie challenge. Yeah, so are these Mounties competing or is it you? No, I think it's you can compete and help raise money for the organization, but it is an obstacle course. You have to choose among four different courses, the commanding officer, which is a 10 kilometer course, the sergeant, which is 5K, the corporal, a 3K, and the junior constable, a 1K, which is for kids 12 and under. And Do they have the receptionist course, which involves <laughs> sitting and cheering other people on? I don't know, but there it, it does look like there's crawling under ropes and pushing heavy things and that kind of, and, and that kind of stuff. That looks very exciting. I wonder if she will uh, be competing in it. Well, she would probably crawl under things very well because she's so I, flexible. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. So. And do it probably so gracefully, too. <laughs> also, Brianna Decker will be inducted into the Wisconsin Hockey Hall of Fame on September 7th. And when she's being inducted, she will also be presenting the first endowment from the Brianna Decker Endowment Fund, which will be going to the Waukesha County Youth Hockey Association. So that's very cool. So this is supporting the next generation of hockey players. Exactly. So it's really nice that she's able to create the fund and make sure that hockey reaches more kids. Okay, moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. We have had a whole bunch of test events. Triathlon test event happened. The paratriathlon test event happened. It was very, very hot. The water quality was not always great. So they had some shortening of distances, some cancellations of legs. And I know that I learned a term that apparently the the Japanese meteorological agency created back in 2007. It's called ferociously hot days. And that's any day above 95 degrees. Oh, so this is their technical term. Yes, it's a technical term. Ferociously hot days. So they had a few of those during the Yeah, 95 degrees is not going to be good for it any sport no no so still a concern and we'll hear about that from now until the games start i imagine maybe it'll cool off yeah maybe it'll cool off a little winter but 
but uh, basketball is also having its test events. Sailing test events are going on as well as hockey. All very interesting. Everybody's having different experiences. So I don't know. It's exciting. It's very exciting. And then also having test events soon, Beijing 2022. How is that possible? I don't know, but they are going to start having test events this winter. They have partnered with the International Ski Federation to uh, work on their test events starting this year. So it's nice that they'll get like a couple of years in to really understand how the courses are doing and tweak it. And it makes sense with skiing because you're not really building a facility. Right. You know, like for ice skating or for luge or any of those, it's creating the run. Right. So it's a little less construction involved. Mm -hmm. And then uh, finally, in other news, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. uh, Remember how we talked how uh, the Italian government wanted to take over the Italian Olympic Committee, and we were like, oh, I wonder what's going to go on with the U.S. since the U.S. government has put in a a bill wanting to take more control of them as well. So the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has proposed to increase the athlete representation on its board from 20% to 33% and added the term athlete well-being to its mission statement. So, So the mission statement would now read... Empower Team USA athletes to achieve sustained competitive excellence and well-being, and well-being hadn't been in there before. Right, because we just care if you win. We don't care if you die doing it. Yeah, right. Or get abused or have nothing to go on to after you retire from competitive sport, and we say adios. Don't let the door hit you. We'll see if it's just window dressing, Mm -hmm. but at least they're window dressing. They're recognizing that this can't go on. Right. We have mentioned before that they are starting to implement programs that work with athletes to help them think about what's happening after their competitive career is over. So hopefully that will help make some kind of systemic change. Well, you know, just like we talked to Giles about adding the word Paralympic Mm -hmm. to the name of the committee, even though it's symbolic, it matters. Mm hmm. So the symbolism of adding athlete well, well-being doesn't do anything, but it does matter. Yes. Because you're putting that to say, okay, this is what we stand for. And now you hope the actions will follow. Yeah, I do. Definitely Me too. hope so. So, well, on that hopeful note, I think we will call it a show. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you back here next week for with more Olympic stories. Um, actually, next week, it is going to be uh, Labor Day weekend for the United States. So we are going to have another uh, episode of Lightning Round interviews. So be sure to tune in next week for that. And uh, until next time, thanks so much for listening and keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at olymfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. So yeah, I'm starting to ramble.